there's a format that I've really enjoyed running with here on the AI and Industry Podcast, and I think our big uptick in the last three months in terms of downloads maybe a sign that it's going well for our audience as well. But that is to find someone with a strong both academic and business background in AI and then get in their words in simple analogies and terms what is currently possible in this space, whether it's predictive analytics and marketing, um, whether it's some business intelligence application, healthcare, what have you. How does that work? And then what is possible in the future and who will be affected? I think that framing things in this light helps a business audience, our audience, grasp core AI terms and trends. And even if it's in a sector that isn't their own, they can see those future ramifications rattle forward through the words of these experts and imagine how that'll impact their industry as well. And I think this this interview this week went awful well in terms of trying to coax out general broader patterns in AI um, and how they're making their way forward in industries. We're focusing this week on healthcare, specifically on cancer. There's nowhere in the AI domain, from what we can tell here at Tech Emergence, no sector that's garnering more AI investment dollars than healthcare. We've done a lot of research in this space and seen a tremendous number of companies come up and lots of big money get thrown into these companies. And our guest this week is Alexandra Leboutier, who is the COO and founder of Imagia.ai, which is uh, up until recently a stealth company, but a fast-growing company in Montreal focusing on medical imaging and deep learning applied to the curing of cancer, looking at various and sundry factors in addition to just medical images to try to predict what will happen with someone's condition, if someone has a condition or not, and exactly how to treat it. So Alexandra goes into uh, what is possible today with deep learning applied to that kind of information, to medical imaging and patient data, where it's currently being used in cancer today, which I think will be eye-opening. A lot of people are not aware of what use cases are already pretty darn popular, and we get a, a good uh, mouthful on that in terms of an understanding of where things are today, as well as what some of the most important trends are in the future, and at least in Alexander's perspective, as to what other information needs to be pulled into these images to garner a richer perspective on the patient and get a more accurate prediction or diagnostic or treatment recommendation on what to do with that patient. Uh, and what that will look like in the future as it moves forward. Very, very simple terminologies, nice solid an analogies being used uh, throughout the interview as well. I think that this was well done and should really paint a great mental picture of the state of healthcare today and tomorrow, specifically in oncology and deep learning. So without further ado, this is Alexandra with Imagia.ai here on AI and in Industry. So, Alexandre, I wanted to go first into what is possible today with machine vision with medical imaging. This is a space that you folks have been working on for quite some time now. You've got, I was lucky enough to be in your office, so I got to see a lot of the talented AI folks that are working very hard in these problems with you. I wanted to get a, an understanding of if progress were to stop today, what can hospitals do with images and AI? What's actually possible? I think the hype gets mixed in with the possible, and I'd like to, to coax out the difference from you. So excellent question, Dan. There's been people saying, oh, AI, it's new in healthcare. In fact, AI has been applied to standard medical images since 1998 for breast cancer. So radiologists, oncologists have the, the chance of working with computer-aided diagnostic system that didn't work so well early on, but as they get more trained and the system evolves, 
now it's very good use to uh, help the detection of uh, breast cancer. So if the science were to stop now and no improvement is made previous AI technique, I would say that this computer-aided diagnostic market will continue to grow at about 10% uh, annually. That's what we see in the market. So with this computer-aided diagnostic uh, technique, what new AI is bringing on board, so the deep learning technique and technique where you don't have to explain in code to the machine what to look for when you are looking at an image, and rather train the model by showing multiple examples. So the machine will understand by itself image features. We can tackle more difficult identification or segmentation problem or even classification problem for uh, different kind of cancers that are more subtle, I would say. For example, low-dose CT to detect lung cancer. It's, it's very difficult from a human perspective to to really detect those small lesions and uh, deep learning can really help uh, that aspect. So without making a new evolution just by using um, standard deep learning technique, the CAD market will grow significantly. But that's what we think uh, a low-hanging fruit and a natural evolution of AI. So it's going to be a quantitative tool uh, useful for radiologists, oncologists, and surgeons to better quantify what is sometimes difficult to detect or uh, or to measure. And we'll go into sort of how this works as well, which I'm, I'm interested in. And, you know, clearly you've been kind of building AI businesses for long enough to have a sense of the older school approaches as well as all this deep learning. When you mention that since around, you know, the late 1990s, AI has played some role, it sounds like, in breast cancer specifically in, in oncology. My assumption is, you know, and you had alluded to this, that this was kind of the older school approach to machine vision, whereby there would be kind of particular hard-coded, you know, descriptions, for lack of better terms, of of what a system should be looking for in in an image, and maybe it would be able to be kind of like a second pair of eyes to detect, you know, lumps or detect cancer in some in some way, and that that maybe was how it was getting done in ninety eight, ninety nine. Is is that safe to say, or was it some degree of machine learning even then? Yes, that was that was the support virtual machine or the net, the neural network that we had at the time. But those people that were doing AI really need the 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 domain knowledge to explain to the machine what image feature was important. Yeah. So they will explain in code if there's uh, something that is round, something that has different homogeneity in the texture, something that has some kind of brightness. So you could imagine few hundreds of those features and uh, would come up with a certain percent of accuracy on detecting and classifying lesion for, for breast cancer, for example. But you're limited to human imagination and also to the common no- knowledge of what this particular type of cancer is looking. So the revolution in deep learning is rather than explaining in code what to look for, you stack neural net together. So when you show an example to the to this stack of uh, layers, the, the layer will configure themselves to basically at the first configuration to give the right answer. So if you show something that you know for, for a fact because you have the ground truth of pathology or the disease progression of the patient, this is cancer image. 
then those layers will configure itself to represent, okay, this is cancer. So when you show a second example, of course, the, the configuration to provide the same answer would be slightly different. And then the, the weight and the way that the, those layers are connected will change to minimize the error and producing the correct answer. So basically, the deep learning is learning from example. And the more example you show, the better representation that you have for those image features. But you don't have to explain those image features because the machine will discover it by itself by configuring automatically the, the series of layers. That's the term deep came from. Yes. And clearly, it, it seems like to have to hard code rules, number one, that that's sort of rigid in a difficult sense anywho but number two it's it's almost kind of limited to limited to what we can kind of conceptualize ourselves we we can sort of think of a pattern that appears to consistently repeat itself it's something that as humans were able to detect as humans were able to describe and then those are the things that we can hard code but really there's probably all kinds of patterned subtlety that really we don't have a concept for and maybe there is no single word for but is still rather indicative of as to whether or not this is cancer. Um, and so it sounds like without limiting this to be stuff that humans can file into words and file into code themselves, we can pick up on sort of a, a much deeper level than maybe even people can articulate. I don't know if that's an accurate way of thinking about it, but I'm trying to explain it for the audience. It's very difficult for human to understand fractal representation or even statistical patterns. So when we see something that has a some statistical property, we, we can't describe it, but the machine will be able to do it. Also, when uh, oncologists or radiologists looks at the series of image and they want to represent how statistically those voxels or pixels have evolved through time, this is also a task that is difficult for humans. So th this is when the machine come to, to help uh, the radiologists and the oncologists as a as a decision support tool. People are really looking for quantitative measure. Right now, they've, they've been using uh, those systems to measure distance, to measure progression or regression of a tumor. But that was the, the way that the system were, were designed just by looking at what's happening and not so much as what is going to happen. So deep learning is opening that door in what we're approaching. Uh, is in the predictive power of deep learning. Yes. So rather than building manually hundreds of features, the machine will discover thousands of features, and we can correlate those features with patient outcome and something that is very unusual, even to genetic mutation. Because what's interesting with, within the imaging is there's a lot of latent information that is not used yet. The machine have come down to very low resolution. Of course, we're not at the resolution of the genes. We don't see those. But we see macroscopic effect of genetic mutation. And that, again, is difficult to capture from a human perspective. But the machine can certainly appreciate different patterns that are created by different genetic mutation. So imagine for a second, you know that something is wrong because the doctor told you that you have a lesion, it's growing, but it's still small. So we need to follow it up every three months until it doubles in size to make sure it's really not that great before they go and biopsy. So sometimes yep. this can take a year. So imagine if, if you can do that 
just at the first image. You look at the image and the computer tells something is wrong with that texture. We should accelerate uh, to the next phase of the cancer care continuum and actually do a, a liquid biopsy, for example. Yes. Okay. And this is going to take us into where the future of these technologies can go, which I most certainly want to touch on. In fact, I'm going to be diving into that directly next as I realize, A, that's that's kind of your value proposition here for your company um, and certainly opens up a lot of interesting opportunities for improving health uh, in, in real and robust ways. Right before we dive into that, I wanted to touch base on you know, you had mentioned some of these older school oh, was neural, neural networks or support vector machines or what have you being applied to breast cancer tumor detection, you know, 20 years ago almost. Um, just for background knowledge, I think, number one, that's going to surprise a lot of people. And I say that because it surprised me and I've had a lot of these interviews uh, and, and have never sort of learned that fun fact. And when it comes to those older approaches in, in let's say, breast cancer, or even, let's say, today's approaches in uh, the more deep learning, machine learning side of things for other kinds of cancer. What what sort of number of hospitals are legitimately using this technology? You know, me looking from the outside, not going in and speaking to every hospital in every small town or every city, it's very challenging to get a grasp of where is this in use and where is it not. I know it's it sometimes can be threatening to doctors, although you know obviously there's arguments that it shouldn't be, uh, although some of them might see it that way. So I have no idea what the resistance is or or what the adoption is. Where can these technologies be found? I think you know you read some places like, hey, this is coming up, and really it's maybe not being used that many places outside of some Watson pilot. But then you know you had mentioned, hey, some of this has been around for a while. How pervasive is machine learning already in healthcare? Maybe it's more than people suspect. I just want to get your opinion. So for breast cancer, uh, our tumor, the product that has been bought by Ologic, as as I think installed in most cancer center. So it's a it's a it's a, it's a product that is used on a daily routine in most of the hospital for breast cancer. Outside of imaging, and there's other other product also, but breast is mainly the the most focus focus of those of those manufacturers. But outside of images, there's other company that do. Um, speech to text for a while. So radiologists, they don't type in their report. They, they, speech, they speak to a computer and this is, this is translated to, to text automatically. So there's also a, a good Canadian company that does that. And the accuracy of those uh, speech to text have increased significantly in the past two years. And this is, this is out in the field. Huh. And, and so you can go into, let's say, you know, most or maybe many hospitals and, and the sort of notes taken are going to be by some kind of dictation system. And maybe it sounds like breast cancer might be where the current penetration is farthest when it comes to yeah. the adoption of these technologies. That's really where it's... Are there any other kinds of oncology domains and diagnostic machine vision domains that are very popular? You mentioned um, lung cancer is quite difficult. Breast cancer, maybe it seems like the, the adoption's already been pretty strong. Any other sort of use cases where actually we already have some good traction in a number of different hospitals? You might go into any state or kind of section of Canada or the U.S. and, and sort of find a hospital that uses it. Any other kinds of cancer where, eh, you know, it's not all that uncommon to use AI? So when we look at the screening program, so what's interesting about screening program, if you can catch the cancer earlier in stage one and stage two, the patient can can survive and get cured. So there's a strong interest from a, from an economic society, from an individual society perspective, of course, to have those screening programs in place. So in most countries, 
you will see a screening program for breast cancer. Now lung cancer has been in the U.S. It's appearing in other countries. China is thinking about it. Um, and also colorectal cancer, uh, where there's a lot of uh, screening program in place. And there's a presence of um, AI in uh, virtual colonoscopy, where basically instead of taking a, an endoscope, uh, you take you take an image and they look at the at the polyp to see if there's some potential polyps there. So AI is also present in in that screening program. Huh, and so it's so it, w- it would not be like a one in uh, a million hospital that would have that particular colonoscopy application. That's actually something that, to the, at least the way you're articulating it, you know, you, you might be able to find that in a hospital near you. Yes, because otherwise you there's too many. Uh, too many images to look for when you inspect a colon manually. So most of the time they use a, they use tools to help them process the, that many image. And that's the challenge. The machine and the, the quantity of image that is produced by, by those new machines, even the machine five years old, produce so many slices that it's it's getting time consuming for the radiologists or the gastroenterologists. Yep. Uh, even in, when they look at videos from endoscope or for, from Campeel, to look at them all, and not only it's it's really boring to look at. Yeah, I so can. They want to focus. It's terribly boring. They want to focus on the image that are suspect or that have something of interest, and machine learning can can help that. Got it. Cool. So this is good to know because I think a lot of folks might have assumed, you know, there's a few hospitals piloting this, or maybe some people thought that it's applicable for all cancers, and it's nice to get a realistic assessment of what are the use cases that are really rolling today. This brings us into the future, uh, Alexandra, and this is where, you know, your eyes are certainly fixed, and I think it'll be important to grab your perspective on this. You had mentioned that in addition to being able to identify, okay, this is a tumor, this is not, being able to get an understanding of how likely is this to grow, how likely is this to be, you know, malignant, and then maybe also you had mentioned genetic information, which which sounds like, and I could be wrong here, you're talking about pulling in information that's not just the picture. So we have the picture, but then we also have some information about the patient that could be layered on it to detect maybe whether or not we should read this image slightly differently, knowing this is a 65-year-old man versus a 7-year-old girl. Um, I don't know if I was picking up what you were putting down correctly there, but speak a bit to what, what breakthroughs in the coming five years are really going to help on the predictive side and what that will allow for. So breakthrough that that actually occurred a few years ago, so deep learning, and another one called radiomics, uh, which actually correlate what you see in standard clinical images to patient outcome and even genetic mutation. So just by looking at an image, the computer can see if there's potential genetic mutation. So you don't need to do a blood sample. You don't need to do a biopsy. So that's the ultimate goal to be able, just by looking at the image, to accelerate the, the standard of care. So both uh, revolution, we think that by combining them together, so doing deep learning and radiomics, what we call deep radiomic, will enable to use standard clinical image data, still automating those image feature discovery, but make sure that we can use all available data in the corpus to to actually correlate to what patient should get what treatment. And that's really the question in cancer Sometimes when you're diagnosed with cancer, there's multiple treatment to choose from. And depending on your, your, your genetic profile, there's targeted therapy. The problem is you have choice A, choice B, choice C. Which choice do you make? You select one. It doesn't work. Three months again, you select, you select another one. So what if we can, at the first time, tell you 
based on the pattern that we see and the manifestation of your phenotype, your, your genotype, we see at, in the image that uh, that drug should, should probably respond better for you. So this is precision medicine. And of course, fight against cancer, you need those kinds of approach where you look at the individual because cancer is a gene mutation and each gene mutation, it's, individual, uh, it's based on the individual profile. So you don't say anymore, you have lung cancer. So you have lung cancer with EGFR mutation, with this particular change, and that will require this new therapy to be effective. But those are very expensive to do. So the approach and what we think that deep learning can change is enrich the data set that is out there, existing data, and make those decisions purely on software, trying to replace expensive biopsy by uh, looking at the data, basically. Yeah, it seems like, and I'm not sure if this is an appropriate analogy, but I'm going to try to put it into a nutshell. I think I try my best to have people be able to kind of see in their mind the applications and, and use cases and trends that, that are articulated by our guests. It seems like if you're going to get your car fixed and you're having some sort of a problem with your rear axle per chance, um, you know, it's it's just fine to go look at the rear axle and to see what the issues are and to try to, you know, turn the car on and drive and see how the wheels work. But you probably should also know, you know, how old is this car? You probably should also know, do you go off-roading often? You know, do you live in the Northeast where it's snowing and maybe that's aiding in the corrosion here? Without that context, it's very, very hard to say, here's how you can keep this from happening again, or here's what you should do about this now that it's an issue. It seems like with cancer, again, if you're just looking at pictures, maybe similarly, this is not all that we need to make our best calibrated guess. So when I go to the car dealer, they don't look at the, uh, at the car anymore. They plug in and they yep. look at all the sensors data. Some of them are even sometimes predictive of there's a failure that's going to happen because something is shaking. The rotation is not normal. And we have all those data in the healthcare system that is growing so fast. And there's an opportunity to look at those data and to make those predictive assessment. So I think the, the analogy is, is, is excellent. And so just in closing then, as we wrap up, it sounds as though the real aid here is maybe knowing sooner rather than later what this condition is and what the ramification is, and maybe knowing sooner rather than later which of the variety of treatments we should go with. It sounds like those are the two major sort of vistas that will open up if we can mesh this data together and leverage deep learning to find those patterns. Is that a correct assessment that it's really sort of maybe those domains, or is there another sort of, again, vista of opportunity that might open up that I'm, I'm not articulating. And this is exactly what we call imaging biomarker. So mm -hmm. there's something in the image uh, that will correlate to an outcome that will correlate to a specific treatment. So those are very useful for pharmaceutical company as a companion test. So right now, all the companion tests for specific uh, therapy are physical. So they need to, to take a biopsy or their fluoroscopy it's always something that involves the tissue. So if you can do that just by looking at the image that is done anyway, that's a significant gain in time and waiting for the patient and uh, for the pharma to be able to get the prescription two months earlier uh, or three months earlier. It's, it's life-saving for, for the patient and it's, it's going to change the way that drugs are developed because when you are in development of uh, a targeted therapy, are imaging that are also done. So 
why not look at those imaging by not just measuring, but looking at the genetic profile that you can see on those imaging before it actually goes out on the patient. There's a, there's a huge potential. And one thing that is important in applying those, I think those breakthrough uh, deep learning and, uh, and radio mix is to allow other people and other organization and other hospital to collaborate together. So this is what we're pushing into the market is, is a platform of discovery for those biomarkers, those imaging biomarkers. So there, we don't want to be the only one that they are going to discover these. That's why we're enabling the hospital and the pharma to work with our platform to ask questions in it. And sometimes the, the answer that you get are not the one that you're expected. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, that, you know, you bring up a point that is often hearkened to here on the show when we speak to healthcare people is that there's so much information in this field, but the, the disjointedness and the disconnectedness, and sometimes that leads to kind of the inaccessibility of uh, that information is, is actually in many ways more of the problem than, than not having it. So I think the idea of encouraging collaboration, I think everybody can get behind that, at least philosophically. We are talking about saving lives here and uh, hopefully kind of the modernization of healthcare in general in terms of how data is managed and the understanding of the benefits of sharing that will bring forth the kind of benefits that I know you guys are hoping for in the decades ahead. So I have my my fingers crossed for you guys in a really big way. Um, and I, I know that that's all that we had for, for time today, Alexandra, but I more than appreciate you breaking down some of your insights and foresight into the field of healthcare here on AI and industry. So thanks so much. Thank you, Dan. We're happy to building that ecosystem for everyone to collaborate in the fight against cancer. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.